Welcome to Data Futures, a series about how technology is shaping our lives and what we need to do about it. Data Futures comes to you from the Media Futures Hub at the University of New South Wales and is recorded on the unceded lands of the Bejigal people. We acknowledge and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I'm Edgar Gomez-Cruz, your host for this episode, and a senior lecturer in digital cultures in the School of the Arts and Media. This is the third episode of our four podcasts offering key insights from the theme of Data Future Symposium, held at the University of New South Wales on the 30th September of 2019. Today, we will talk about data experiences. Data is sometimes a rather abstract term, and while it is always rooted in the past, it's future-oriented. So in this episode, we are interested in interrogating how data is perceived, embodied, lived, enjoyed, and suffered. In short, we were interested in how data is experienced, in data experiences. As ethnographers, this is essential for us to engage not only with the data, but inevitably with the future. The speakers in this episode are Heather Horst, Jolina Sinanen, and Olga Boychok from the University of Sydney, Paul Dorish from the University of California in Irvine, and me, Edgar Gomez from UNSW. So I'll just hand it to Justin Hombre from the University of Sydney, who will chair this session. Hello, welcome back. Come on in and take a seat. We have a very exciting session about to start. So in introducing the next section on data experiences, I'd like to first reconfirm our respect for the Bedigal people the traditional custodians of the land on which this event is taking place. So I'm Justine Humphrey. I'm a lecturer in digital cultures at the University of Sydney. And you'll meet me a little bit later in the third and final part of the session. But um, what I'd like to do now is introduce the data experiences panel, which I'm very excited about. First of all, because it's an opportunity to move from the kind of wider technological contexts to thinking about what data does to subjects and to processes of subjectification. This is going to be a really interesting instalment and continuation of this morning's session. It's exciting in other ways as well because the format of the panel is very novel. We're going to run it as a series of... Now, there's two ways of, of pronouncing this. Pecha Kuchas, I've heard, and also Pecha Kucha. Okay, the internet has told me that there's two ways of pronouncing this. It's actually originally a Japanese term, and it roughly translates as chit-chat. So we're going to be having a series of chit-chats, and then we'll be having a respondent, and then more chit-chatting amongst yourselves, and then questions. So we'll be following the same format that we did this morning, inspired by Eve Tuck's uh, recommendation on how to run a Q&A session. So what I'll be doing is introducing each individual panel member individually to come up and start their pechakucha or pechakucha. The pechakucha is a short format presentation which is delivered automatically. The slides progress automatically, talking about automation. Every 20 seconds, a new slide comes up and there's 20 of these slides. So it's a very specific format style, and I'm really curious to see how our presenters have managed to, 
achieve, achieve the 20-20 format. Uh, so be a little bit, uh, we'll be a little bit flexible with time, but I think we will have plenty of time because based on my calculations, each presentation will be exactly six minutes and 40 seconds long. <laughs> After the presentations, I will invite Ned Rossiter uh, up to, or, or he can uh, sit next to Paul if he would prefer, or he can come up here to, to be a respondent uh, for, the, for the panel presentations. And then after that, we'll have a little bit of time to prepare our peer-reviewed questions, which you will then have an opportunity to deliver to the panel. So that's how, be, how I will be running the session today. So to begin with, I would like to introduce Olga Boychuk, who is a lecturer in digital cultures at the University of Sydney. I'm very excited to present her because she is a new colleague of mine uh, in the Department of Media and Communications. And Olga will be presenting on small data. Social. Social data, sorry. We have small data coming up. <laughs> Social first. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for the introduction, Justine. And thank you to Heather and Edgar for having me here. I'm very excited to be here. So today we're going to talk about social data and the self. Human lives are saturated with data from the uh, tracking devices and apps to the smart connected devices. Each facet of human behavior uh, may be tracked using multiple technologies, which allow for an unprecedented ability to store and analyze digital data about individuals as well as society. Moses here, according to a popular meme, was the first person with a tablet to download the data from the cloud. <laughs> Now, that data had 10 very clear criteria by which distinguished between the good people and the sinners. These criteria were public. And so the question is, what happens to our understanding of self when the data is being made digital? What does it mean to be human in an age when not only our communication, but also our thoughts and desires may leave digital traces? And also, who gets to decide and to establish the criteria with which we define ourselves? Uh, so attempts to understand the self through, uh, through data are very old, and of course, uh, things like diaries, uh, those of us who are parents probably resorted to something like this to quantify our children's growth. And so, uh, so this, this was pretty clear cut. And also a lot of the times on, on the part of the institutions, there were also attempts to know individuals through data. These are some more elaborate attempts of a quantified self. Here you see the sleep pattern blanket, each row in which represents each day of a child's life recorded by a parent. This is a train delay scarf, which represents the experiences of commuting and train delays. <laughs> and perhaps one of the most impressive analog visualizations of the self comes from a project called Dear Data, in which um, two women who were graphic designers exchanged postcards over the course of a year um, they were documenting various experiences of their lives. So things like when they checked for time or when they were complaining about things. But also quantitative data has historically been collected by institutions such as the state census. And so in this old model of social knowledge, um, individuals were, data on individuals was publicly collected, publicly funded, publicly analyzed, publicly put to use, and also could be publicly contested 
which provided a certain degree of transparency in how social description took place. So it was very easy to understand how this picture on the left becomes uh, a weight chart, becomes part of the distribution of the pediatric growth chart. Um, and so that was pretty much clearer uh, than, is, than it is now. And so we could raise, we can publicly contest the categories in which we were being put. And with the transition to the social quantification in the format of the digital data, a new model of social knowledge emerges where the data about individuals is collected, funded, analyzed, debated, and contested in the private, in, by private institutions and in private sphere, which obfuscates um, the categorization of, of us as selves and which also rewrites epistemology at scale when it comes to uh, what we know about ourselves. So for many of us on the planet, our digital footprint begins at least a few months before we are born and stays long after we pass away. And so it would be fair to say that our datafy itself precedes our experiences as a human being. Is anybody good at these? These are cat scrattles. And so when, when we think of uh, the different actors in the social quantification sectors and the way in which they're uh, manipulating the data to make it fit different molds, different category-based representations is exactly what happens to our datafied self at the moment. And perhaps an extreme form of our body's entanglement with the technology is biohacking, which can take on different forms from actually inserting um, sensors underneath our skin to uh, less invasive methods such as uh, spe specialized tattoos that can help us make sense of our daily experiences. And so there are a number of ways in which uh, why people track uh, what they're doing. So uh, some of them do it to monitor and evaluate their habits. Uh, some of the tracking is done to elicit sensations, such as what does it feel like when our blood sugar drops to dangerous levels and things like that. Uh, debugging a problem, such as people who might have headaches might resort to that. Uh, but some of uh, the self-tracking is aesthetic. So for instance, these are Strava visualizations. This is just aesthetic curiosity, and there's Strava artists who run around the city mapping their route to make it look like these pictures. Um, and so, um, but also, while data is being tracked on an individual level, uh, structural patterns may have social implications. And this is a famous case in which even if when the data is being masked, the identified stripped of all personal information, it can help reveal structural patterns. This was a case with a secret US military bases which got uh, identified after uh, Strava released their data and made it public. So a datafied self is this cyborg assemblage in which human body is configured by the use of digital technologies which interacts with these technologies in dynamic ways. And so personal data about the self is being computationally turned into a measurable type, which is this category-based representation. And these are Google ad settings. I encourage you to look into yours. This is what I was categorized with through some actions that I will never know what they were. But, uh, but basically, this measurable type gets to set those criteria for distinguishing between legal and illegal, good and bad, healthy and sick, deserving and undeserving. And it would determine everything from our, the place of our plane tickets to whether we really will get an ambulance once we call triple zero. So the implications could be major uh, that are coming from categories that we do not know of. And so algorithmic citizenship is another uh, kind of categorization which is used by the United States government to track uh, certain subjects if they suspect they might be foreign. And so I will just end with privacy, that our understanding of self in the algorithmic age should, be, should incorporate the social, these social aspects of digital data, being allowed to access and control the information that's 
about us out there, even if it's up in the cloud. And also uh, thinking about not only the right to be forgotten, but also the right not to be identified and the right not to be categorized. Thank you. Six minutes and 41 seconds. Right, you've, you've set the bar. Thank you. That was really interesting. And I think, you know, gi giving some thought to your kind of closing comment about whether, whether, you know, we need to have a right to not be identified is very applicable to the kind of, you know, young data that, you know, that, that you were talking about. You had a few examples about and that were also mentioned earlier on in this morning's presentations. What happens in that kind of pre-memory stage and what kinds of rights can you or can you not have over your data in, in that period? So, moving on from young data or social data about young, young people in many ways to old data, I'd like to introduce Paul Durish from the University of California, Irvine, who will be up next with our Petrakucha style. And I'm so glad you said that because I actually don't have a title slide on my slides. So it's like nobody would know what it was about if you hadn't said that. So, um, you know, so obviously we're here today talking about data, and I actually just don't mean that today at this event, but just sort of in general, right, data is a topic of today. And I think quotes like this sort of, you know, capture the zeitgeist, they speak to the, uh, the, the malaise of the kind of overwhelming amounts of data we deal with. Um, it sort of captures something, but I cheated because it's not a contemporary quote at all. It's actually from the year 1613. It refers not actually so much to data, but to books. And the fact that it isn't talking about data, I don't think matters because it's the sentiment that matters and the familiarity of the sentiment um, is, is relevant here. So I think there's two lessons that I wanna draw from that. The first is that data and data problems have been with us for a long time, and the second is that um, our sense of what they are evolve. So what I wanna talk about today is something of the prehistory of data, if you will. Um, I'm gonna do that through a couple of different sort of examples and, um, and themes. And the first one is the weather. I'm British, I'll talk about the weather. So in the 1950s, the US National Weather Bureau had a problem, and their problem was a data overload problem of the sort that we might be familiar, but theirs was actually slightly different. It was that all their data was being stored on punched cards, and they weren't sure that their buildings could any longer support the weight of the data that they had collected and could anticipate collecting. By my calculations, one gigabyte of data on punch cards weighs 35 tons. Um, and the point is that when your data weighs 35 tons, you don't casually mine it for insights. You don't sort it by another criterion just to see if there's a pattern there. Um, and you certainly don't build interactive visualizations. To have data, then, does not necessarily mean to have something that you can manipulate or that you can work with. It's not processable, necessarily, nor usable. Indeed, arguably, the more of it you have, the less that you can do with it. So this brings up an interesting question for us, because I think when we, the worries that we have about data are not actually necessarily about data itself at all. They're about the things that can be done with it, about the, thing, the inference and action that we can extract from that data. It's only recently, I'm gonna argue though, that we have started to equi equate data with doing. Um, if the doing is what's, is, is, what's pro the, the, is the problem that we're worried about, data doesn't necessarily lead to it. Oh, quick, second example. Um, 
separate example comes from the police force and thinking about police officers as data processors. The notebook is sort of the quintessential data tool for um, police officers. And this particular force in this study decided to replace notebooks with laptop computers in order to make the force more efficient. You would imagine then that if they all had these laptop computers, everything would become so much better. But in fact, the result was the, was the opposite and their cleanup rate went through the floor. It just crashed. The reason, in the end, turned out to be quite simple. In the small college town where this study took place, there was a lot of petty crime, a lot of like you know, stolen bicycles and the rest of it. And everybody knew that if your bicycle got stolen, nobody was ever going to find it again. And so if you went to the police station to report a stolen bicycle, they would carefully listen to you, take your details, write them on a piece of paper, and then lose it on its way to the files. Once it was in the laptop, on the other hand, it was entirely, it was already there. So essentially what was happening was that there was many more crimes being reported, but the same number of crimes being solved. The introduction of the technology had eliminated another key data technology, which was the trash can, the waste paper basket, <laughs> um, which had been removed from the, from the process. So again, I want to think about data and doing and the relationship between the, relationship between the two. Um, let me give you a third example very quickly, which concerns location data and location tracking. So, you know, we all have seen plenty of newspaper headlines that speak to the anxieties that people have about the very personal nature of, dat of, of data about location and how it is that it might be leaked or, um, or, or analyzed. Um, but I want to sort of ask the question, given that we have always, always, we've all always been somewhere, when did data, be when did location become data and how did location become data? What does it mean for my being somewhere to become a data point? When location-based apps were first being explored, I was working on privacy questions along with some colleagues and I formulated what I called the hired goons hypothesis. The hired goons hypothesis was that the digital technologies that we had for trying to um, you know, mine in information about people's locations were much less effective and in fact a lot more expensive than just hiring a couple of goons to follow somebody around and figure out what it was that could be determined. Um, a friend of mine actually did this. He hired private detectives to follow him, or him, him around for a week so that they would tell him what they had been able to determine about him. It was a very sort of Philip K. Dick kind of moment in a way. Um, the point here then is that location was always a knowable thing even before it was data, which raises this question about how it was that movements become data, what it means for something that was prior, no, priorly knowable to now be datafied. Um, people have always moved in the world, so have we always had location data as a stamped passport, a data repository? What are the characteristics of the attitude that we have to strike towards the world in order to see things as being data? And what does that mean for sort of our attitudes about everyday presence? Now, in pointing to some of these things, and indeed in talking about old data, I'm very conscious of the, the problems of um, you know, precursorism, um, beloved of pointy-headed academics the world over. Um, and, you know, the idea that I, I'm trying not to claim that simply that there's nothing new under the sun or that everything's been anticipated or that we already knew these things. But there are, I think, some important things about trying to historicize our sense of what data is and to understand the historical conditions under which contemporary understandings of data arise so that we can see the sort of historical situation about how it is that we talk about data, our notion of data, um, and then for perhaps take a slightly more skeptical view to the sort of universal idea about what it is that data can do or what it might do all by itself. So, so what can we do in consequence? Well, the first thing I'd like to do is suggest that we sort of shift our attention away from data as an object in the world and focus it a little more on a relational reading that focuses attention on how it is that we take things to be data and approach the world and engage with the world as if data were there or data was something that we could adopt from, extract from it. 
And perhaps we might also think then not only about how we relate to data in the world, but how we relate to each other around data in a world in which we are already datafying those things that are around us, to focus a little less on informational flows and a little more on, on sort of collective relational experience. Okay, I think it was 641. It took me two seconds to press the stop button, so I think that was actually 640. Thank you. That was really interesting, and thank you very much, Paul. And it gives us a great deal to think about, uh, and I really enjoyed sort of the, the bringing to the, the forefront what, you know, what, what data looks like through the perspective of things that people do and what we do to data and what it means in quite specific contexts and what changes about data when we might have technologies that enable us to capture new forms of data that we haven't been able to capture before, such as location data. Uh, so on that, I'd like to now introduce Edgar Gomez-Cruz, who's going to... Uh, Edgar's from uh, University of New South Wales and has been instrumental in the uh, setting up of this panel, along with Heather. Uh, and uh, Edgar's going to be presenting on invisible data. So thank you very much. Okay, so responding to the panel's title, I must confess that as an ethnographer, I'm more interested in experiences than in data per se. So since I'm interested in forms of visibility related to these experiences, I want to discuss some ideas about invisibility that are not only reduced to data, but are connected to it in so many different ways. Now, I've been doing digital ethnography, uh, for those of us who like to feel digital since I had hair on my head, so a long time ago. My main goal in all these years have been to try to understand what people do with technologies. And Lately, the question I've been kind of like bossing in my mind is like what technologies do to people, and that's something that I want to discuss today. Uh, I was born in Mexico City, a city of 23 million people, almost the total Australian population in a single city. And after 15 years living abroad, I have found myself coming back to Mexico more and more often, uh, while apologizing for my carbon, uh, carbon footprint. One of the reasons for my constant visits has to do with the fact that Mexico has become a field site for me. And part of the reason why I found Mexico to be an interesting place to think about data, algorithms, and, and the digital in general has to do with the fact that living outside the country but keeping like families, friends, and, and contacts over there, I have observed a very particular use of a single technology, and that's WhatsApp. Now, WhatsApp, and this is the first invisibility that I want to uh, show today, uh, the, the first that I want to address. WhatsApp has been mostly invisible in the studies about the digital in the, in the come in the later years, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and even Snapchat or WeChat have been prominent as platforms. And this invisibility has to do, I suspect, with three particular reasons. So this, this is the first invisibility, WhatsApp as an invisible platform in digital culture. On the one hand, WhatsApp is not that interesting as a technology. It doesn't have as many features, for example, as WeChat um, just yet. And nor is particularly fancy. Um, on the one hand, it feels like mostly it is perceived as a personal technology rather than a social one. And finally, it is one of many options that in the developed societies we have with more advanced equipments and data allowances. Nevertheless, in Latin America and in some parts of Africa and Southeast Asia, WhatsApp is the most important digital technology, period. Everyone with a smartphone uses it, and it's used for pretty much everything, from communication to work, from information exchange to entertainment, from kinship to socializing. That's why, along with my colleague, Harindranath Rameswamy, we have called WhatsApp a technology of life. Now, there's something interesting about WhatsApp, 
And this is the second part of, this is sec the second form of invisibility I want to discuss today. Since it is an, an encrypted system, WhatsApp is not open for academic inquiries with using a data-centric approach. So no digital methods here, sorry, Mr. Rogers. The only way to know what happens when people use WhatsApp is using like good old technologies, uh, good old methodologies such as ethnography. Of course, I'm aware of the power of corporations uh, to access this data. Nothing seems to be invisible for Facebook, Google, Amazon, etc. And along with data brokers, these companies have almost the monopoly of extraction, processing, sorting, and storing of data. WhatsApp, encrypted or not, it's not, a, it's not an exception. Nevertheless, and, and this is something that I want to present as the third form of invisibility, uh, from a political uh, economy perspective, Facebook is clearly the most important uh, player in this story. It is not random that Facebook spent $21 million, uh, billion dollars on WhatsApp. They did it because they knew that the better future for their business model is to be equally social but less visible, and therefore accountable, and this is the third form of visibility. And this creates a fourth visibility, that of algorithmic cultures being enacted and formed in non-Western societies. The so-called global south remains at the margins of mainstream academia. Some of the concepts coined in, in this mainstream academia are not fully translatable to digital experiences happening there. It is not random that most of the presentations today have kind of like a component of power of that. So WhatsApp seems to be a good example of those private social networks because it is highly malleable. In that sense, it is less algorithmically driven platform as a socioculturally adaptable infrastructure. And that will probably change because Facebook has plans to merge the three uh, platforms in some way. We will see what happens with that. Now, it also makes sense to have this kind of like uh, sociability in Mexico because that's the way that Mexicans actually socialize. You know, a semi-public, semi-private sociality is a good for Facebook, but it's also good for Mexicans. Because, you know, it kind of makes sense to be subterranean in a country with lakes under cities and rivers that flow to the surface only as a sacred pools. Now, the problem with that is that, uh, particularly WhatsApp, it's becoming more uh, perceived as a volcano than a, than, a, than a pool, which are also very common in Mexico. Mostly invisible and cultorium, but sometimes erupting with violent force. For example, in discussions about misinformation, politicians that have mastered or lynching mobs in exotic places. A reading that implies somehow a third worldliness of the, of the platform, of the, of the app. Now, this is the last layer of invisibility I want to discuss related to WhatsApp. Uh, WhatsApp data is, is kind of like invisible because you, you don't understand what is happening in WhatsApp unless you are part of a specific group. The data is always partial to the whole story and it needs a social, cultural, and historical uh, um, context to be decoded. So the, let, the data is less representational than uh, kind of like affective. I don't, want to, I don't have time to show you vignettes about the fieldwork, but instead I will connect WhatsApp with the ideas my colleagues are presenting today. So WhatsApp data is mostly free, and I was expecting to be the last one, so it's mostly free, and it's always social, albeit small, and it's definitely in, mo in motion, so it can get all qui pretty quickly. Now, on the last three, three slides, I want to propose some elements for a future research agenda that brings some forms of visibility back. There are, these are not new, but they are important and more important than ever, I think. We should actively engage, privilege, and expand research agendas that use a non-data-centric, non-Western-centric, and non-techno-centric approaches. The first one, I think it's important, uh, non-data-centric, because in this kind of like digital uh, environment that we have, it could lead us uh, to more critical and reflective about the, the, the reach and importance of data and how we can think about it. We need to offer viable alternatives to digital methods and engage with innovative and human-centered technologies. Perhaps more than ever, ethnography matters, and I'm sure Heather, the both Heathers in the room will agree with me. The second point, um, 
uh, is that we need a larger and better dialogue between mainstream academia and the digital South. We need to decolonize internet studies because there are things that we can learn from both uh, different geographies, but mostly from, di from different data experiences. It is time for regions as large as Latin America to become more vocal, innovative, and present in the discussion about the digital. And hopefully we will just manage to do that. Finally, while technologies are doing uh, things to people, I suggest thinking about data futures, data infrastructures, experiences, and justice should resist falling into a technocentric approach because humans still adapt technologies in particular ways and it is important to know them. Thank you. Thank you, Edgar. That was really helpful for thinking about the different layers of visibility and invisibility and for, uh, you know, bringing, bringing to the foreground as scholars how we, what we might want to make visible, what we might want to prioritise when we're uh, studying data and data experiences. So thank you very much, that was excellent. Now, next up, I'd like to introduce Heather Horst. Heather is also at the University of Sydney in the Department of Media and Communications. And Heather's going to be looking at another aspect of data again. We're covering all our bases here. We've looked at social data, we've looked at old data, we've looked at invisible data. Now we're going to look at free data. Thank you, Heather. Okay, um, so what I will be talking about as this comes up today is really about, um, is really actually um, what I'm thinking of as a different category um, or experience of data. So I wanna actually start out my talk today with a rhetorical question. Does anyone in the room actually know how much it co uh, costs to download an app, for example, that's 80 megabytes? When was the last time that you thought about how much it might cost you to download your email? For those of us who travel regularly, managing the cost of calls and data might be part of our awareness, but for most of us sitting in this room, understanding data in this kind of granular way is not part of our everyday reality. So my talk this afternoon will focus upon the everyday relationships that people have with data, primarily from the perspective of Fiji, where I've been carrying, about, um, carrying out ethnographic and historical research, focus on the impact of liberalizations on the telecommunications landscape. Integrating a few key examples from research, and this is also with Robert Foster, over the last four years, I'll focus on the phenomenon of free data and how this operates in people's lives, with a bit of reflection on what it means for a broader understanding of data. But first, a bit about free data. So in, in the context where I've been working, most people operate on a prepaid phone plan where dollars amounts are equivalent to set amounts of gigabytes or megabytes, et cetera. These are available for mobile phone users um, to purchase at most times, this is, that was a scratch card. <laughs> um, with the growth in sm smartphone adoption and in turn the increased desire to use data has come a series of promotions for extra minutes or free data. Vodafone Fiji, for example, has this top-up bonanza, which you can see here, which is basically doubling amount if you pay $6, tripling the amount on $6 and so on. Increasingly, there are also free data promotions that bundle together a range of services. These often include monthly, weekly, three-day three or one-day passes that bundle together particular amounts of data with other services such as free Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp, or free money, which can only be used in periods outlined in terms and conditions. Tomasi, an indigenous Fijian man in his 40 who works as an office supervisor, often buys a $7 bundle each week, which includes access to seven gigabytes of data. 
As he notes, quote, once you recharge and go online and subscribe to their bundles, you also get free SMS and free calls. Tomasi also takes advantage of free Wi-Fi at work. But for the many citizens of Fiji who are unable to develop a routine of topping up weekly, Vodafone Fiji and Digicel Fiji offer day passes where consumers can prepay for their data bundles and free data on their smartphones. Theoretically, these services are available and easy to use, but they can also be less than straightforward. So Falori here is an 18-year-old indigenous Fijian woman who lives in an informal settlement along the Suva-Nasori corridor. Like other young women at her high school, she loves to go on Facebook and watch funny videos on YouTube. The first time Falori used her smartphone to watch videos on a day pass, she noted that she only managed to watch about three videos before her 24-hour pass expired. At that point, it was about a um, dollar Australian for about 300 and mega, uh, 350 megabytes of data. She mentioned this to a friend and they immediately showed her how to turn off some of the automatic settings that effectively enabled, or ate up rather, her data. The next time she saved enough money to buy a day pass, Valori decided to take advantage of a three-day pass, which she used for browsing Facebook, chatting with her boyfriend on Messenger, uploading photos to her Facebook page, and watching videos. Valori actually felt satisfied with her social media use when this three-day period ended. And two weeks later, she went to buy another pass, only to discover that she no longer had the credit she had just added to her number. This is because she bought a bundle with the previous pass that had automatically renewed, renewed each week. And she admitted that she actually saw the phrase automatically renewed when she, uh, when she sort of went on and subscribed, but she was actually unaware of what it really meant. These are the kind of terms and conditions you can sort of see on these ads and in, in, even in the emails and messages that you, text messages you get. So Falori's experience with using a day pass is not unusual for mobile consumers in Fiji accustomed to operating on a prepaid plan. With little access to extra money, Falori and others like her have learned to use her smartphone through a particular logic, what Jonathan Donner has called the metered mindset. So the metered mindset operates where people do not actually have 24-7 unfettered access to the internet for a variety of reasons, structural and otherwise. Instead, as he describes, smartphone users sip and dip, unquote, going online for very short and specific periods, and then spend the rest of their time offline with no credit and or in airplane mode. And we just recently saw this in Papua New Guinea with um, an app that we've created that we've purposefully designed for people to share and use when it is offline. Free data promotions are designed to create moments of the kind of ubiquitous mobile usage most of us live with um, to a greater or lesser degree. But rather than creating freeness, the various bundles and associated forms of free data work to hold the customer into a deeper and more dependent relationship with the company that provides network services. So while companies often claim the terms and conditions are clear, users often have little opportunity to escape the telecommunications systems at work unless they opt out entirely. And in places like Fiji, where the number of networks is actually limited, opting out extracts one from the socio-material relationships that are central to people's lives. The mobile co uh, company's use of auto-pay and automated services effectively disrupts the kind of uh, practical resistance kind of practices, the, the ways in which people actually try to themselves uh, create freeness, and requires new systems of discipline to emerge to leverage freeness, such as going through gifting economies of credit, as we saw in Papua New Guinea, and applications as GC share, which you saw in the last slide. So I want to end my talk very shortly today with a series of questions. 
First, can such a thing as free data exist and for whom? It's often difficult to track and trace the process of getting what you pay for, let alone taking advantage of the kinds of conditions on free data that might be involved in using or downloading a new app. Second, and related to this, to what extent can we understand the culture of terms and conditions in mobile and indeed other forms of digital culture as transparent? For whom are they transparent and for whom are they accountable? These are the kinds of moral economies of data that I'm interested in exploring in different contexts and from various vantage points. Done. <laughs> Thank you, Heather. And yes, many of the insights that you shared with us just then are very close to the heart in terms of research that I've carried out on the uh, mobile voice and uh, internet experiences of people experiencing homelessness who sh uh, face many similar kinds of challenges in relation to managing and negotiating their services and their, their data. Uh, so um, thank you very much. And we could say you know, that there really is no free data, or another way of saying that is that there's always a cost to data, and that cost is different depending on who you are and what's structuring those uh, data experiences. So thank you very much. And um, on that note, I'd like to invite um, Jelena Sinan up for the final uh, Petra Kucha in the data experiences panel. Jelena is also a colleague of mine uh, at the University of Sydney, uh, in the Department of Communications, and she will be presenting on small data. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to go for seven minutes because I was a rebel and I have a title slide. So, but now I don't know how to use this 20 seconds of extra time I now have <laughs> while I'm setting it up. Now it's starting. There we go. Hey. Okay, so there's no time to reference, there's no time to uh, laugh at my own jokes, but there is time for an extra 13 seconds of slide. Um, so, this, in this brief talk, I'm going to be looking at small data in the context of practices of sharing and collecting other kinds of material objects. Um, so this is a, um, a still from the movie High Fidelity. This is Rob. He collects records and he is having a midlife crisis and he is categorising his records according to autobiography. Um, what are the implications of digital data assemblages and the different regimes of value that shape our desire to share, store or shed our digital data? What are the mundane ways in which we interact with and manage our data in our everyday lives? Scholars in critical data studies, Deborah Lupton, Andrew Iliadis, Federica Russo and Graham Pickren, draw our attention to the complexities and power relations around wh whom personal data can become valuable. While big data refers to data collected, stored and interpreted about large populations, small data concerns individuals. Critical data studies focus on the ways in which data in the sciences and infrastructures are informed by particular histories, ideologies and philosophies that typically remain hidden. Here, I relate the interplay between material and immaterial infrastructures and how they shape the nature of data storage, circulation and meaning making. By thinking about practices of sharing and collecting in the home, I draw attention to the social relationships, emotional connections, individual and collective imaginations that shape how we produce and experience digital data. Digital data within the household is also embedded within the context of often emotional laden relationships and interactions. The way labour is performed within the household around organising data, untangling its messiness in order to access it and make sense of it into the future, is important to how data represents meaning and value within these small-scale interpersonal relationships. Labour is invested in the incorporation of technologies into everyday life with attention to maintenance or repair. 
Home spaces and family possessions have meanings that are shared within the family, but that are unknown to outsiders. Sharing is bound up with ideas of property, ownership and self that are learnt during childhood. Sharing in the home is usually taken for granted and seldom draws attention since it is a routine activity without the more formalised rituals of gift giving. Google, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and other sites have ushered in a new era, era of sharing that has quickly been embraced by millions. Yet everyday sharing of information outside of digital spaces such as recipes, directions, travel tips, restaurant recommendations is often more the rule than the exception. Until the advent of digital platforms, sharing was an activity that was associated more with the interior world of the home rather than the exterior world of the work and market. Collections within the household can also be thought of as family-related objects. They speak to the individual, our present understanding of self, our anxieties about contemporary society and our vision for the future. In the most common form of collecting, the objects uh, collected are acquired through marketplace purchase, used through maintenance, display and curation and dispose of only at death. Collections are the possessive construction of a set through accumulation. They imply order, a system and perhaps completion. Collected objects are often anthropomorphised, fetishised and personified. Once a thing, idea or experience enters a collect collection, it becomes non-ordinary and somehow special. While some people may write autobiographies or consolidate their life experiences into photograph albums, for the collector, the collection is autobiography. It is both reified experience and the demonstration of an accomplishment. It is a monument to the self. Like, uh, like objects in the home, digital data of photographs, music, movies and games must be organised and put in its place. Today, our information, communications, videos, photos, music calculations, messages, written words and data are now largely invisible and immaterial until we choose to call them forth. Do the rituals of possession and dispossession employed with material objects apply to digital objects as well? How do we collect digital, seemingly non-material things and how do they contribute to our sense of self? Organising the sheer abundance of personal digital traces can involve daily routines of organising data which include deciding what to keep and where to store certain digital materials. Decluttering digital data, Justin's anonymous by the way, um, decluttering digital data in involves disposing, editing and other forms of curation. Within households, there can be an intentional process of cataloguing. We are surrounded by technologies of memory that speak the language of storage and containment and we count storage space in terms of bytes. With digital technology, nothing is stored but code. Forget to up wait, update the software through which an encoded material is made visible and there is little left. Not because information is immaterial, but because visibility is gener generated through material inscription. And with personal devices, documents and contents are no longer separated from computational archival infrastructure. The labour investigated into curation form a particular kind of hobby-like work. As leisure, a leisure, as leisure, hobbies like collecting provide a respite from the normal demands of work, uh, demands of work but as a particular form of leisure, they express the deeper meaning of a work ethic. Working at leisure gives meaning to both work and leisure. Per process of processes of organising and sifting through data are kinds of individual and family work that can result in the materialisation of value of digital data, such as the printing of these family photos. Scholarship in consumer studies by Belk, Evan Carroll and Romano question the re relationship between the acquisition of things and the acquisition of digital content. How do digital objects help us extend our sense of self, but also what type of self and relationships do they help us extend? As more photos, movies and email messages are created, um, an entire collection becomes a fuller reflection of you. Many of us have archives that speak directly to a collective sense of self. Curating and interpreting a multitude of materials, photographs and objects in boxes and garages and cupboards. 
and increasingly on computers. With it, there is an increasing trend towards engaging the public frequently in digital formats, but the meanings of digital data, especially, especially images, hold more value for individuals and than their capacity for malleable forms of self-presentation. Living with digital mess involves managing and making sense of data in our everyday lives. Attentions to the efforts in organising and tidying, categorising and deleting, <coughs> draws attention to the meaning and value of data for individuals and how these may change across time. A material analysis such as examining practices of sharing and collecting can, as Paulie D has argued in his 2017 volume, The Stuff of Bits, that was only for Heather, provoke thinking about the social and cultural life of technical objects and how, in, how software and hardware in relational settings inform decisions about how to manage the digital traces in our lives. Fantastic work team and very disciplined, very disciplined. So that was really fascinating. Lots of really interesting connections between those uh, presentations. And uh, to try and make, uh, make some of those connections, I'd like to now introduce Ned Rossiter, who will be a respondent for the panel. Uh, Ned Rossiter is based at the Institute for Culture and Society at uh, Western Sydney University. Uh, well, first of all, um, thank you very much, uh, Heather and Edgar, for inviting me to um, take on this um, unenviable role. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I also didn't have the, um, you know, uh, foresight or, you know, opportunity to know what you were going to say, which was <laughs> kind of t just as well, because it's more work to then know what you will say. Um, uh, so what I thought I'd do, first of all, in not knowing what you would say, is um, offer uh, a, f a couple of minutes on, on framing um, uh, the, the, the theme, right, the topic of this session, which is, is data experience, of course, uh, by setting that term experience um, up against another term, uh, uh, which is in a way its counterpart, um, uh, and namely experiment. Um, so, uh, you, you know, um, while, uh, at least in Australia, uh, the humanities is terrified of experiment, experimentation, uh, it's not, if so, you know, you will never see, uh, I've seen it once, actually, Professor of Experimental Media, I was totally thrilled, uh, almost applied for it, but um, uh, <laughs> you will rarely see the term experimentation used as distinct from the sciences, right, where it's a very routine kind of um, term and indeed practice, where experiment uh, takes place in controlled environments and seeks to create uh, verifiable and incremental knowledge. Uh, experiments tend to be procedural and they um, test a hypothesis. Um, <coughs> in, in, in some ways, then, uh, they're not designed to produce um, surprises. Um, in contrast, you know, I would suggest that experience is always contingent, uh, where ontology reveals itself phenomenologically. Um, we can consider experience alongside another term, which, I, which is invention, um, and we can consider experience as that which um, has a processual dimension. Uh, so the, sort of in, in leading into these papers then, I, I sort of had a few questions coming out of Mark's talk this morning, wondering then what happens when experience is passed through the sort of automated logics um, of preemption, for instance. Um, I wondered then, does the contingent dimension of experience subsist 
in the digital temporality of the interval imminent um, to the operational logic of what uh, German media theorist uh, Florian Sprenger calls um, uh, micro-decisions. Um, so in other words, I, I'm wondering uh, within the, uh, the, the kind of paradigm, the epoch of, of data and digital infrastructures, if that neat distinction uh, between experiment and experience still holds up, uh, and if that is not in fact um, a distinction special to the uh, modern episteme, if you will. So moving then uh, to these papers, and, and you know, like, uh, I, 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 I want to take, I guess, three more minutes because then I've got six as well. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I spent sort of 40 seconds while you were setting up your slides doing my preamble, um, and another 10 just now. So how to then uh, link all of these? I'm not entirely sure, so I'm going to run through a few threads and see if I get somewhere um, in the final 15 seconds. Olga, um, first of all, uh, made clear, at least to me, um, uh, that there is also this thing called template subjectivity uh, uh, that, that attends the quantified self. And with that, something else we could call um, a template knowledge um, that is really you know, apparent in visualization software, which is designed, of course, to make um, some kind of external world, the referent, um, intelligible. But I don't know about you, but rarely do I find visualization software intelligible. Um, <laughs> Uh, which sort of suggests uh, something, again, connecting back to Mark's talk, that we're not necessarily expected to comprehend um, these operations, but rather the kind of operation of them in themselves produce a world, uh, which I think we can hold on to that. That's a world in Olga's talk of calculable subjectivity, um, of a kind of a metrics of the self, um, and also a, a kind of... Um, a, a kind of profound insecurity and narcissism that attends um, that world and is exploited um, unforgivingly um, by the um, design of, the, of these devices, coupled with, of course, the awful parasitical um, tendencies of um, insurance companies, for example. Uh, so you conclude in a, in a sort of odd way, in a way, I thought, um, uh, you know, how to think data politics, for me at least, um, beyond rights and beyond privacy, because it seems that these devices uh, amplify the individualization of the self. Um, uh, but, but is that then what data politics is about? Uh, or rather, uh, you know, how would you connect um, that type of politics with, uh, let's say, um, a, a different scale, uh, a, the, the geopolitical, let me say? I'm sorry, I'm taking way too long, right? Um, it's okay? It's okay? Okay, okay. By my time. Wow. That never happens to me. That's <laughs> uh, what lawyers want, <laughs> not academics. Um, Paul, um, you know, the, the key thing I took from your, your talk was the crucial reminder of the materiality of data um, coming through uh, this idea of the longevity of data problems. Uh, it, the storage problem that comes with that, obviously, uh, and also then the knowledge problem. Um, uh, is it Sophie Carl? Uh, I, I mean, wonderful artist. Was she the person who also had the detective following her to see what she was up to? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. So these aesthetic um, uh, prehistories as well to the contemporary and the ways in which the materialities, um, the techniques of, um, of an analogue technology in her case and that, that fun experiment she ran, um, uh, how does that kind of uh, play into something that I think um, Svetlina asked this morning around the, the kind of 
the history of automation, for instance, and whether or not uh, we have continuities and, and, and not just discontinuities. Um, uh, I, I, th I thought you might sort of be heading in that direction, Paul, um, uh, and you wrap because you had six minutes and, and 42 seconds um, uh, instead, uh, you know, of making this important intervention around, um, uh, y you know, collective experience. <coughs> um, uh, that comes up in, a, in another kind of way, perhaps later in the other talks, with, with um, Edgar, who was supposed to be Dolina. <laughs> um, so that was interesting passing going on there. <laughs> um, uh, you know, um, we talked about um, the, 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 the poor old um, neglected WhatsApp, um, the, the app that everyone seems to use, right? At least uh, uh, all of my family members who have got phones um, seem to use that. Um, we hear about how it's evil as well. I, I thought I was going to hear more about how evil WhatsApp is. Um, uh, so the scraping tool um, uh, and the kind of, if you like, uh, the, the, the monopoly of knowledge that data breakers, brokers rather hold here, um, I found entirely intriguing. And you raised um, kind of implicitly or explicitly, I, I can't tell, maybe both, um, uh, you know, like the, uh, the problem of method, even though you weren't going to be Richard Rogers, thank God. Um, uh, and, and with that, you know, you kind of end in a, a paradoxical way, I thought, wanting to make a case for the, the kind of politics of vision um, uh, as something which, which won't fall into, uh, for, for among other things, a, a kind of Western paradigm of knowledge. Yet, yet it seems to me that hi historically, like, um, the technique of ethnography is precisely a technology of colonialism. Um, uh, so I wondered how you might, um, uh, you know, deal with that, actually. Um, um, Heather, um, for, for me, uh, what, what kind of came through particularly strongly um, was uh, you, you kind of returned to the, the kind of problem of the panel, um, which, which, which in, a, in a way that was quite a bit more explicit, which is that of experience. <laughs> um, uh, and, 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 you know, the question for me was around, you know, uh, experience and the conditions of possibility um, for invention and um, experimentation, uh, and indeed, uh, the, the production of autonomous um, uh, 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 autonomous infrastructures, right? That, that seems to be um, the invitation that happens within these worlds um, that are vastly different um, from the kind of routine experiences that many um, in the kind of um, digital north or wherever the hell this um, orientation might be um, experience. I loved particularly the idea of opting out, you, you know, and, and uh, gosh, you know, it's hard not to just sit in this privileged seat and feel nostalgic um, about, you know, dial-up internet connections, right? And, <laughs> and you know, you, you, I remember, you know, I, my housemates used to hate me because I always had 100 phone calls a day and they had none and I'd still insist on splitting the bill. Um, uh, but no, no, really, I took Italian, we did it quite fairly. <laughs> it was a tax deduction, <laughs> even though I had no income. Um, <laughs> and. Um, yeah, no, I mean, you know, like the opting out, right, um, the sort of um, excitement that comes with not being connected as well, um, the, the way in which, you know, desire, you know, to return to some, um, you know, arcane kind of um, notion of subjectivity is made possible by exclusion. I, I mean, I'm being totally romant romantic and offensive here, I'm sure, uh, if we dug into it. So, but the main key point here was to end this sort of, uh, end I thought, so it's also a bit puzzled around ending around transparency and accountability. Uh, for some reason, I really don't like these terms. Um, 
I'm not sure if you used them, but I wrote them down and put them against your talk, so maybe they were there. Um, uh, but I wanted to make the connection yeah, back to um, Edgar here. Um, uh, around, I'm nearly done. I could, uh, only one more t speaker and I'm done. <laughs> um, uh, you, you know, the kind of relationship between transparency, accountability, and, and, and colonialism, actually, um, to go back to Edgar's talk. All right, um, on small data, you know, from the start, um, uh, Jolene, for me, uh, you know, uh, I had the w wonderful sort of presentation from you of the paradox of small data. Um, and I couldn't help thinking immediately the question of scale and power. Um, <coughs> you know, at what point does um, um, big data become small as well? What's the inverse of that? Um, or at least scale to become actionable um, at the level of, you know, the sort of perniciousness of, of sort of preemptive policing, for example, which which just plays out at the level of the individual or community. Um, I, so you're talking about these labor investments in everyday life, everyday sharing of digital platforms. You know, the curious paradox is that it is the sharing which makes possible the aggregation. And this returns us also to Olga's talk, I thought, around template subjectivity. Because what happens with sharing on these platforms? We have the kind of... Um, corrosion, the kind of evacuation of difference because everything becomes the same. And what we start to see is patterns of the small data on, a, on an aggregatable scale, uh, right? W once everyone's got the same experience because it you know, has to fit the kind of um, politics of parameters, the parametric politics that come with using these um, platforms. Um, and it make, brought me back to the question finally, um, not only uh, this template subjectivity, but the question of um, w where then lies um, invention in these um, daily daily routines. Now I hope my ear, you can't really hear when I talk out of my ear, so I hope, you know, because I was, the ear was pointing to the microphone, uh, I hope you could, you could hear sufficiently, right, <laughs> despite that. All right, good. Those were Heather Horst, Jolina Sinanen, Olga Boychok, Paul Dorish, and me, Edgar Gomez, with five commentaries on data experiences. In the next episode, we will turn to the theme of data justice, hosted by Tanya Dreher. Thanks for listening.